0: Welcome to the American Citizen Summit, where respected political leaders, grassroots visionaries, and other pioneers are charting the course toward a healthier political culture, which expresses America's founding ideals of liberty, equality, and justice for all. Please share this event with your friends and family, and join us on Facebook at The Shift Network. And now your host, Steven Dynan, CEO of The Shift Network.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the American Citizen Summit, where today we're getting to go deeper into an area that often creates and perpetuates a lot of divides between left and right and really has an opportunity for more common ground than we think, which is the future of defense and, and the broader, uh, broader category of national security. So with us today, we've got two people who are really extraordinary pioneers in this area, charting the way beyond some of the partisan divides into terrain that can really help us evolve as a country. Diane Randall is the Executive Secretary of the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is a terrific group. Uh, my wife and I have gotten involved last few years going uh, for their national conference and then the Peace Lobby Day that follows, and they work in a very bipartisan way across the across the aisle to, to, to really advance different peace-building initiatives. And she's got a broad background from all the way back in, in nuclear, Omaha Nuclear Freeze Campaign mm-hmm. to working with the Office of Urban Affairs and Board of Education. And she's, uh, she's an extremely talented woman who's, who's very active on these issues. So welcome, Diane. Thank you. Great. And also with us today, we have Michael Osterlink, and he is someone who, um, as a founder and national coordinator for the Medical Privacy Coalition, and also the founder and national director of the Liberty Coalition, a transpartisan coalition of groups working to protect civil liberties, privacy and human autonomy. He's also the co-founder and president of the American Conservative Defense Alliance, which works to promote a traditional conservative Foreign and defense policy. So, again, he has a massive bio, been involved in a lot of transpartisan uh, initiatives as well. He was co director for Reuniting America and the president of Reuniting America, and now executive director of the Transpartisan Center in Washington, D.C., as well as a policy fellow. So, welcome, Michael. Thanks, Stephen. Great. Well, Michael, since you've got so much of the uh, grounding in the transpartisan work around the defense industry, I'd love for you to maybe start with some framing comments and and reflections on on the future of of defense and national security, and and we'll go to
2: Diane from there. Uh, Sounds great, and uh, thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. So um, I'm a conservative consultant for a project called the Pentagon Budget Campaign, which is a transpartisan effort at encouraging smarter spending, not more spending. Uh, I've been working with them for about three years. As I mentioned, it's transpartisan, so we have friends from all across the political spectrum, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, progressives, et cetera, et cetera, all in agreement that we're misspending money at the Pentagon. There's a lot of waste, mm-hmm. a lot of programs we don't need, just, you know just a misallocation of resources. Now there is disagreement. What you do when you save that money, and I'm sure Diane and I can get into that conversation, but it's an amazing effort and it has been quite successful up until recently. And I'll say that there's two things that kind of put a stop to our momentum. Um, one was the, the video taping of the beheadings by ISIS when they started floating around the internet. You know, people started getting scared, and when people get scared, they get defensive. When they get defensive, kind of their rational thought goes out the window and they want to spend more money, not less money in defense. Or they don't want to mm-hmm. essentially spend smarter, they just want to spend more. Um, and then when the Russians invaded Crimea, it gave the excuse for the people who wanted to spend more on defense to say, look, the Russians are the new boogeyman and we need to you know, increase spending, generally speaking, and then of course NATO spending as well. So we've hit some roadblocks, but overall I think it's been a quite successful effort bringing you know, players from all across the political spectrum together. Uh, which, in it in and of itself, is a good thing, and then specifically to this effort at reducing Pentagon spending is a really important thing, especially in light of our almost 18 or maybe a little bit more than 18 trillion dollars in debt. We just can't afford to misspend money anymore. Great.
1: Well, I really
2: appreciate that work, and Diane, maybe it would be great for you to expand the the,
1: um, the framework a little bit, since I think what Michael's pointed out there is is a great initiative that. In many ways, it's, it's making uh, making us better at delivering on the existing mission. And there's also there's also a whole uh, paradigm shift in how we think about national security as well. And mm-hmm. there's the, there's a new book out called the National Grand, New National Grand Strategy that really ex- explores this. You know, a lot of our psychology around defense is really kind of comes from Cold War constructs mm-hmm. in the sense that we can protect against uh, defined mm-hmm. threats on our borders. But really, we live in a, a very different world in many ways, so much more interconnected. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more about about that kind of broader context of how do we evolve defense.
3: Great. Thanks, Stephen. And I uh, repeat what Michael said. It's great to be on um, with you and to um, share this opportunity to talk about um, both the idea of citizen engagement in these vital questions that affect all of us as well as a, a little bit of just thinking more about um, national security as a concept. and oftentimes when we think about national security, we equate it pretty um, clearly with military spending. And um, it does, uh, clearly military spending has a link to it, but I'd like to think a little bit about national security on a broader level, to think about what is it that makes us feel secure, because Michael pointed out a couple of incidents that have happened recently that make us feel insecure. Mm -hmm. And so we often think that when we're insecure, we need to fortify in some way And um, while um, clearly there are those who believe that more and more spending on military is a way to fortify, um, there really has been good research recently and progress in thinking about other ways that we can approach um, both the globalized world and even the sort of insecurity that threatens human security. So um, I, I want to get into that. I, I do want to say that um, I, I think this Pentagon spending campaign that FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, is also involved in is very, very important. And it's, it's a vital uh, way to talk to members of Congress who are Republican, who are Democrat, who are independent about the kind of federal choices we have. And so we're excited to be part of that as well. When we start talking, and and we care about the ways fraud and abuse, and we care about what else the money gets spent on, um, as Michael suggested, we've really um, thought a lot about both smart spending, smart security, as well as just the concept of shared security in a globalized world. Um, Mm -hmm. What you said earlier, Stephen, about the notion that a lot of our structures about how we look at foreign policy, how we look at our military spending, is based on a Cold War model where our, our world has changed dramatically. And um, I could even say in the five years I've been at the Friends Committee on National Legislation, I've seen dramatic changes in how we think about what the threats are against us. And it's not clear that, you know, building, having land-based um, uh, nuclear missiles is really what's protecting us. Um, there are a lot of ways that we can rethink both systems, like specific weapon systems, as well as how the military is used. And all those things go into making up the military budget, which at this point is you know about half of our discretionary spending every year.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a lot we could explore. Michael, I'm curious, um, so this broader frame of... Uh, that we have really live in a very different world and and if you if you didn't have to take into account the the political variables of like what you can actually pass and what what's what, where the common ground is you know what what kind of factors would you be thinking about in terms of de- designing like spending in a way that's more effective to actually create true national security now what would I mean in a way what would be the the ideal that we'd be moving towards if it was politi- politically feasible?
2: Great question, and even before I get there, I'd like to just put something out there, <clears throat> um, Diane. You did a you know great thing of pointing out not limiting it to military spending, but what I'd like to actually do is the te- is talk briefly about the totality of national security spending. We mm-hmm. spend about a trillion dollars. It's over over fi- over 500 billion, close to 600 billion dollars, depending on which year it is on defense, and you have know, the intelligence agencies, Department of Energy, uh, Homeland Security. So there, you know there's a lot of money to quote-unquote defend us that we hopefully can talk about sometime during this call. Mm-hmm. But in terms of um, like if I had a magic wand and I could kind of undo the, the Cold War mentality and, and it's important to note that we have the Cold War mentality with the global war on terror quote-unquote thrown on top, It's never, we've mm-hmm. never really rethought the threats. So one thing we should do is look at the true threats that we face in, this, in, the, in the present time and in the near future. And take a smart power approach to that, and which would include military. Military is important. You've got to be able to defend yourself. And I put "defending" quotes because it's really, inf- from my perspective as a conservative, you know, our role is not to police the world, but to defend America. Not that we can't be helpful to our allies, but our mm-hmm. ultimate goal is to, be- to defend the United States, um, <clears throat> which is important, I think. But so as a conservative, I, that's, you know, that, that's kind of the perspective I take, but I'm open because I'm a transpartisan to having a broader conversation, which I'm looking forward to with Diane because I think she'll have other perspectives that I haven't thought about or that I don't necessarily hold. But what are the real threats that we face in the present time and the near future? And how do you organize against them? And then how do you fund those strategies to deal with the threats? Um, and Diane, you might have a different perspective because maybe even the whole threat matrix as an organizing principle might do exactly what I, what I talked about earlier in terms of turning on the defense mechanisms of the psyche and making it more challenging to look at opportunities we might have to make the world a more peaceful, just world as opposed to looking at it as a threat. But mm. for the present moment, I'll just use the threat matrix. And some of the threats we face are water issues globally, access to resources, poverty, uh, mass immigration, Refugees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, asymmetrical warfare by, you know, terror, quote unquote terror groups. I'm less fearful of China and Russia, especially if you look at the amount of money they spend on their own defenses. Um, I don't see them as a major threat that we have to necessarily organize against. Um, but some of the more asymmetrical threats, organized crime, um, things along those lines, are the <laughs> things I think it would be best to put some of our money into to deal with. Um, then, like I said, like something like the Cold War mentality where you have a mm. uh, bipolar world, or in this case, a tripolar world with China and Russia as the new scary boogeyman.
3: Michael, you and I agree on a lot of these things. And I, I guess I would just uh, expand a little bit and think about this political moment that we're in. And when you think about um, the populist kind of sentiment that we've seen through this election cycle, for example, about people saying, um, I, I want... I want a better economic opportunity. I want to be able to get a a post-secondary education. I want to be able to live in my community, work full-time, and provide for my family. I mean, this sort of economic divide is also one of the problems that we're seeing in terms of insecurity. Now, that's not um, maybe a threat from the outside, but it is, I think, threatening our uh, civil society in a sense. Um, And so when I think about what, you know, again, back to that broader framework of what national security is, it truly is about well-being for people, and that includes Mm -hmm. economic well-being, and I think it includes health, I think it includes education, and so we can look just at the United States and say, what do the people of the United States want? You know, I mean, clearly we want to be Uh, free from fear, if you will, but I think we want to also have that opportunity for our children, for our grandchildren, and I completely agree that, you know, the issues of water, and I would, you know, expand that to say climate change overall, you know, rising sea level, and when you think about the threat of migration, that's driven – and we've seen some substantiation that that's driven by climate change, but moreover, it's obviously driven by violent conflict. And it's also driven by lack of opportunity for people. And um, that's, a, that's a huge phenomenon we're seeing right now that is putting pressure... Um, obviously on Europe, um, but also on the United States and other developed countries. And um, so, you know, there are both these ways that we can look at it from the United States perspective. And then I would say on a global perspective, you know, there's been a lot of work done uh, on the sustainable development goals that have come through the United Nations, but they've also been um, uh, looked at in countries um, across the globe that deal with exactly the kinds of things that we've been talking about, poverty, hunger, um, good health, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy. I mean, there's, there are 15, 17 of them actually that You know, the countries are aspiring to, which is exciting to know that there are countries around the globe that are actually sharing these same um, ideals for all the people of the world.
1: Mm. You know, it kind of strikes me in in hearing both of you reflect that there's it's like the parallel evolution in healthcare where we went from a disease centric model, which was okay, you're you're getting a really targeted approach to treating a particular disease, to a more holistic model where it's really about building a resilient system and making sure your whole your whole being is uh, is healthy and whole, and that actually creates more natural defenses and so it's less less about the kind of mechanistic just fight off a of, ward off a particular disease although that does have its, its function but to to widen the frame and once you strengthen the system as a whole that actually ends up c- preventing a lot of diseases and helping your system uh, naturally do that so uh, do you, michael do you find that 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 kind of more holistic systemic uh health perspective is getting a lot of traction amongst Coalition members and kind of the broader community or, or are people still kind of retreating back to the more the, the fear-based emotionally driven kind of just you know want to have the big military that's going to fight off the threats um, that, that feel very scary?
2: Um, I think this is an evolutionary process. so I would say at the cutting edge you'd have people like Diane and others in her, in her orbit who are looking at things more holistically and so, including yourself, Stephen, in a wide variety of areas. Um, who are looking at things more holistically, um, recognizing the limited the, the limits of kind of the narrow thinking of the past, quote unquote the threat matrix that I started this conversation with, and, and organizing around that. Um, but I think it's just the cutting edge of people. I think the majority of people are still caught up in you know the threat matrix. And money and such like that, as opposed to looking at all the, all the all the possible factors, and you can't actually look at all the factors, but all the known factors um, that we sh- we might want to address as a species living on planet Earth, or just even in America as Americans, um, to shift the frame from you know, threat to holistic thinking and well-being, health and happiness. And you know, I I just want to make a point that depending on budget campaign doesn't talk foreign policy. Except for maybe shutting down certain military bases abroad, so I'm not speaking on behalf of them. But our foreign policy is also important to look at, because it has a great effect on some of the things that I mentioned earlier, and that Diane, Diane ex, uh, expanded upon. I mean, if you look at a lot of the folks from South and Central America who cross our border here in the United States, a lot of that is a result of 20, 30 years of the war on drugs. And, you know, because okay. of the, our war on drugs, we've destabilized all of these countries. And not to say that, you know, the countries would have been fantastic and whole and healthy without our war on drugs. You know, like, yeah, that really can't be known. But we do know that the war on drugs, when you do prohibition, for example, does increase the level of violence. And increase, and, you know, increase the level of violence. People want to escape the violence and one place they come is the United States. Same with North Africa. You know, we overthrew Gaddafi, and that stabilized all of North Africa. Not all, but you know, good to the many countries surrounding North Africa. Same with Iraq. You know, ISIS is now a result of our interventions in Iraq, mm-hmm. Syria and Iraq and now other places across the globe. So you know, I do think it's important to kind of look at things holistically and then for us as a country to take responsibility for the things that we are causing due to our lack of foresight mm-hmm. in our foreign policy as an example. Mm-hmm. So there's some there's
1: some deeper analysis of root causes that needs to really permeate the thinking as well, like where we're where we're putting the fo- focus. I think that's a great point. Diane, anything to respond to that?
3: Yeah, I I started thinking about if you you carry out the health analogy and what uh, Michael was just saying. In in some levels, it's the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm. And Mm -hmm. I think that's important to to go back and look at, you know, on a deeper level. I want to say a little bit more about the Pentagon spending campaign, though, and specifically what what this means in Washington, D.C. And and I think listeners – Often feel very disempowered when they think about the federal budget or they think about Congress because they think, "Well, what can I do? How can I be involved and the fact is that um, I, and I think people often think that Congress is you know completely gridlocked, and while Michael and I are both here and see See gridlock in Congress. There certainly is it, but there are steps that have been that can be taken to move Congress along. And clearly, the voices of people around the country matter, and they matter a great deal. And and that's not to say that um, there aren't other things that influence Congress. We all know that money is a big influence on Congress, but but people, um, citizens, um, do need to talk to their members of Congress and members of Congress listen to citizens, and they particularly listen when they're running for public office. And, and of course, all the members of the House are up for public office this fall uh, for election, and about 30% of the Senate is up for re-election as well as the presidential uh, candidates. So there is an opportunity to kind of raise some of these issues in the public sphere or in your local communities. And so I think I think it's really important for people to think about also what they can do. So what issue might they raise? It might be a broad issue about our federal spending priorities and whether we want to continue to spend, as Michael indicated, almost a trillion dollars a year on military and related defense national security structures, or whether there might be another way we want to put money into a human priority. So that would be the perspective we come from. That that re, that is really important to think about this in terms of what are what are priorities. And I think of priorities as um, people, planet, and peace. You know, these are all things that are you know the, what what people need, what our planet needs, and what do we do to create peace. And there are ways that we can in uh, you know back to the conversation about. Are we trying to move money out of the Pentagon to something else? Um, You know, that is a debate that can be had. It's not what the Pentagon budget campaign is doing. But for small sums of money, we can put more into peace building. We can put that, and peace building would be a prevention method, trying to prevent violent conflict before it happens, trying to support, you know, civilian-based peace-builders in small ways could go a long way toward addressing some of the violent conflict issues. So there are are a number of solutions that we think are possible. Um, I do think it's probably important that we do touch on the economic issues related to Pentagon spending because as most people know, and as Dwight Eisenhower predicted over fifty years ago, there is a military industrial complex that has implications um, and I don 't know whether Michael wants to touch on that because I 'm guessing, and certainly the Pentagon Budget campaign has thought about that a lot.
2: Before Michael <laughs> definitely have, um, I, would, I would refer listeners to Veronique de Rugy. she's a, a policy expert at the Mercatus Center, which is a free market think tank out of George Mason. And she co-authored a report a few years ago that looked at misallocation of resources at the Pentagon. So, for every dollar misspent, or you know, not spent correctly at the Pentagon, I think was a dollar twenty-two out of the economy. So, wow. not not only are you taking money out of the economy for people to you know be productive in their lives, uh, you're also making us in the end less secure because you're buying weapon systems we don't need. You're not providing the, the appropriate training and equipment that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines might need in combat because a lot of decisions, as Diane mentioned, are politically determined, not determined based on strategy, technology, and need. Um, and it's very dangerous. And unfortunately, um, Congress, uh, the, the defense uh, companies, uh, the lobbyists, you know, they kind of all nicely work together to benefit themselves at the expense of taxpayers and our military at, at large. Um, but two, two, just two other things real quickly, uh, I, I agree with Diane, it's really important for citizens to be engaged and not only talk to their members of Congress but perhaps run for Congress mm. and to be as informed as possible. Um, and we have a lot of great groups in our coalition that you can go find some information about and I can talk about them later if interested. But uh, Diane, you mentioned something r- earlier that I think would be great for for you to expand upon, and I like to touch upon. I, besides, you know, calling your member of Congress or texting or emailing or you know faxing or whatever you might want to do to or t- to you know encourage them one way or another. I think uh, individuals, families, and communities can actually do things on a daily basis to make their own lives. that's us even use the word resilient. You know, increase well-being, health, and happiness by the choices they make in food,
3: mm-hmm. you
2: know, as an example, and time they spend with each other. And, you know, there's a lot of things that people can do. health and fitness and food and education and medicine. A lot of decisions are, you know, taken on a daily basis by every individual person. And I think if uh, American citizens were more informed on their options at that level, they might become more resilient as individuals, families, communities, and as a nation, um, which I think is really important. Because, unfortunately, the trends are heading in the opposite direction with a lot of the diseases, lifestyle diseases that we now face and environmental challenges we face as well.
3: And I would add to that, I think that just, um, you know, I know um, the Shift Network has done a lot of good work in thinking through sort of how do we take, you know, our own spiritual well-being and let that inform you know who we are and I want to say that I I think that there's never we are of course a faith based lobbying organization we're a Quaker affiliated and in my um, sense there's never been a greater need for people to um, kind of uh, use that um, spiritual power and the power of resilience to actually have those transpartisan conversations even at a local level and be, be willing to talk to people uh, with whom they have differences and not to be angry and yelling but to say what are our differences and where might we see if there's common ground to move forward. We're just at a vital time for people to be engaged with um, one another in deeper, more profound ways. Mm. Amen. Yeah, it's clear the uh, political uh,
1: culture is really sp- sp- splitting us apart on so many different levels right now and it's got to be a high priority for all of us to shift that culture to one where we really the diversity of political diversity actually becomes constructive rather than destructive right now it's often just you know cuz we're just, just sniping at each other and and not actually listening and, and exploring real exactly.
3: And, solutions. Exactly. And and even I mean, you know, I mean, I, I just I, you know, there there are there are reasonable um Way, there are reasons to be partisan. I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that completely. But, but there also are reasons to allow our partisanship to um, uh, fade when we're trying to find solutions, and we're seeing too little of that, and and that concerns me. I mean, it concerns me for the well-being of the country let alone, you know, this, this sort of uh, huge question of our own sense of security. So I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, we're talking now about a lot of different levels about what people can do, but, but they are integrated and they are holistic and they do require us to stretch ourselves in ways that we might not have thought necessary. So it is a, it's a very, um, I would say, very yeasty time in our political and social lives that kind of demands that people be deeply engaged.
1: Can, I am to can bring I in just another little perspective here. Like One thing I've, I've thought about, also in writing my recent book, I, I was thinking about the, the whole issue of defense and, and moving. What's, what's the next level of it? Um, and you know, we once called the Department of Defense Department of War, and then we up-leveled the mission, if you will, to defense which has, is more focused on the protective side of the equation. And it struck me that it would be a natural next evolution to say to, to actually rebrand the Department of Defense as the Department of Peace, which would include the military, but also would include a lot of the other kind of concerns that we're talking about. So in a way it expands the mission, recognizing that, that um, security concerns actually require, first of all, aiming towards peace. But peace has often been so, um, uh, you know, essentially turned into a left-wing Cause in many ways, they're like the the board itself has gotten branded as left wing, rather than a unifying label. Um, just curious, Michael, on your side, do, do 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 you see opportunities to sort of a way up level the mission where it's like it's more unifying, like as national security tend to bring people together. and I'm thinking about like all the different people associate with conflict transformation or different kinds of psychologists or healing work. It's, Things that aren't, we don't normally associate with, the, with our defense uh, industry, but actually are really central to creating, to addressing these uh, deeper, deeper um, you know, wounds, cultural wounds where people are festering resentments. and There's a lot of things that need to be addressed that, that can flare up in, in um, security concerns.
2: Right. Well, a couple things, and then I'll answer that. Um, Diane, you mentioned the importance of citizen engagement. Uh, I recommend folks check out the Living Room Conversation. It's a great organization that's um, facilitating conversations amongst citizens in their own homes. Um, you know, from Department of War, Stephen, to Department of Defense, I think language matters, and it would be more accurate at this time to call it the Department of War because um, it's not organized to defend the nation. We have a completely different mission. So I think the Department of War would be more accurate. Now, if you wanted to call it an, a piece, you're right. Um, it kind of has a—it's it, a hard to grasp a word on the center right: libertarians, conservatives, and paleoconservatives. So we might want to play around with the language or something. But a bigger framework, something like the Department of X, that encompasses a lot of these things that Diana has been talking about and I agree with, might be useful as an organizing principle um, to recognize that you know the military has a role to play. But it shouldn't be the first, second or third option. It should be like the last option. Mm-hmm. In fact, you need to do that. And there are a whole bunch of other things that can be done. Some of it at the government level, but you know, as as a more conservative libertarian leaning person, I'd love to see more active engagement of citizens globally. Mm-hmm. Like remove mm-hmm. all the barriers for American citizens to travel abroad and engage in, you know, citizen to citizen contact. You know, mm-hmm. um, Americans should have been floating around uh, Iran for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. I think that would have changed the dynamics of the U.S.-Iranian relationships. Americans should have been in Cuba for the past, what, 50, 60, six, almost <laughs> 70 years <Yeah. laughs> for that very reason. you know, I, I think when you get human beings with other human beings and you don't have the state propaganda informing them, it changes the dynamics completely. And I think that is an important piece of this puzzle as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I just want
2: to Ahead, to real quick. Um, there is a great report called the Neuroscience of Peacebuilding uh, put out by the el hebre Foundation, mm-hmm. yeah. and I encourage folks to check that out
3: Stephen, can I just jump in and say something yeah. about the 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 terminology? I think words do matter, and you know we the, here's here's what what I've found in washington d c um, there are there are top military people who, who really understand conflict prevention and want it, and I think that's important for people to know. I don't think the military wants to get into battles. I think they want to prevent um, war, but they're prepared to fight war. And so I agree that a better name, you know, might be the Department of War, and let them. I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be paying attention to peace building. But what we've put into what's now the Department of Defense is you know we've loaded in all kinds of spending you know research and development on all kinds of things that don't really relate directly to you know military preparedness or even national security, because Congress has basically given a free pass to anything that goes to the Department of defense i mean mm-hmm. there's no impunity for um, not i mean the pentagon hasn 't had an audit you know for how long i don 't know decades and it you know there's just huge problems and it 's a big boondoggle and so that's that 's a concern to citizens whether you want a super strong military, whatever you want, you don't want your government wasting your tax dollars. And I think that in itself is important to keep remembering. I would say that on the peace building side and on the diplomacy side, which are two strategies that we can use, as well as citizen to citizen engagement as a third strategy, these are ways that we can help build an architecture for peacemaking, and that's part of what we've been trying to pay attention to is what are the components within the U.S. government, not creating a new department, but within the State Department, within the Department of Defense, within the National Security Council, within these various mechanisms of government already. What is the architecture of peacebuilding? So as Michael said, when a conflict happens or when we see a conflict on the horizon, that the president doesn't have to turn only to the top, top military brass, but has other resources to think about what can be done. And I think we're starting to do more of that, but we firmly believe that there has to be much more done and that it is a better investment of taxpayer dollars
1: reminds me of when we lobbied last year on the atrocities prevention yeah. board and how that yeah. was it's sort of like an early warning detection system of what, when things are about to really implode in different areas and how important that pre, it's like preventative medicine versus uh, emergency medicine to use exactly. our health
3: metaphor we're
1: there. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. where we're Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, Michael, I'd love for you to hear your reflections more about if we were to adopt more of the preventative medicine uh, approach and, like, how would you... You know, allocate resources to be more strategic about that.
2: Well, using your kind of holistic health um, um, model, I would say, and following what Diane says, first do no harm. That'd be a good first step. And I think, unfortunately, you know, we've had since the since the end of the Second World War till till now, a long history of interventionism abroad. Which has um, not been helpful and, in fact, harmful to our own national security, but you know, speaking globally to the to global stability, and and such. So I think we it'd be helpful for us to reflect. We have a you know we um, a shadow, a, a collective shadow, um, which we don't talk about. And I think it would be useful to look back and say, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. As a first step on healing ourselves before we can look forward to say, we've recognized the limitations of our previous actions, the harm that they've caused. Mm -hmm. Let's try not to replicate that. And then how can we move forward? And I would say, you know, two different paths. And I think both paths can be integrated. I still think a threat matrix would prove prove useful because there are real threats. You know uh, we talked about water water and other type of resources, limitations, Diane, you mentioned global warming, mass migration, you know refugees all all those kind of things asymmetrical warfare, so there are immediate threats that need to be dealt with, and then I think it'd be helpful to take the like the long view as well and say, okay, you know twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred years down the road, what kind of world would we like to live in Yes, and then we'll of walk that backwards. Idea. Mm-hmm. and like how can what steps do we as individuals we as states we as a country we as the globe you know as a mm-hmm. species uh, need to take to reach that but we have to be realistic because you know um, there are bad people who want to cause right. others harm you, you can't mm-hmm. just, we can't pretend like there aren't quote unquote evil people now a, a lot of people who might fit into that category might, might possibly be saved preventively bef- before they enter into that space and others just might be so damaged that there's nothing that can be done, and they just unfortunately need to be killed. Um, but you know, that's such a small part of the conversation, and it should not be the leading mm-hmm. part of the conversation. I think, uh, you know, as Buckminster Fuller talked about, Spaceship Earth, that could be a really good perspective, and then work backwards from like 50 to 100 years mm-hmm. how to mm-hmm. become a, a real global commons.
1: I, I'm a I, I'm a big believer in what you're saying is to really expand the vision of what's possible and then work backwards. And then we have the realism where the, much of the American psyche is like caught up now in terrorism, for instance, and that tends to put us very short-term, very emotional, very primal, kind of instinctual level. So any just reflections, Diane, just on how do we shift the the, the climate? I mean, because terrorism is likely not going to go away anytime soon. We, right. we it, There's going to be continued... Continued incidents. I mean, it still is. It's not probably going to get to a level where it's it's more. There's there's more risk than to us than, you know, average dry, day driving driving to work. It's a, but it, but in terms of the dashboard of priorities, it becomes very front of mind and make big decisions right. that are happening around it and it's big political mobilizer and so there's a lot of emotional juice that goes into it. And and so it can make it very hard to to be long term and rational and strategic about these decisions. So, just any of your thoughts around how do we start to shift the climate around that, even while we're probably going to still have uh, a fair amount of you know random terrorist incidents, in
3: right? Near, right. Future? I know it's 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 a great question, and it's one that a lot of um, you know, really um a lot of minds are focused on. And so, I mean, I think the other corollary is you look at you know mass shootings that. Captivate us and anger us and outrage us, and you know we just—that's when the you know conversation around how do you prevent gun violence occurs, and yet we you know don't pay attention to the 33,000 deaths that are happening every year, you know, around gun violence, and you know, over well over half of them being suicides, and you know, so that sort of perception of what is is truly dangerous is is an important one to try to raise. At the same time, you know, when we respond with fear, that is a, I mean, there's a lot of neuroscience that kind of understands that in a way that um, just means that there is not a logic that follows immediately. It takes some stepping back to try to look at that. So, I mean, I do think that this question of both Um, countering violent extremists is really an important one. And there's, I think, been a lot of live debate and beginning to have some ideas of what might happen on that. And I think we're in a very, very nascent stage to think about that. But I think Michael's uh, statements about, you know, going back a ways and looking at where we have funneled, res- funneled um, so-called security assistance, meaning weapons to, uh, to groups outside of militias or other um, non-state actors, and even in some cases to states, has foisted some of this on us. So there's, there's a lot of questions like that that we have to address. I think the other part is just getting back to where we started, talking about Pentagon spending and you know how much is going into that let me just like compare nuclear weapons to, you know, addressing terrorism. It's not a solution, and yet we're going to probably spend a trillion dollars to modernize our nuclear arsenal. Might we better spend even a portion of that money on something that is addressing the true threat before us and begin, you know, doing both research and preventative measures now? And, you know, the the other thing I would just caution and say that any of these global problems, any of these deep systemic problems are going to take some time to change. I mean, even though we'd mm-hmm. like them to change immediately, um, the important thing is to work on them now so that we can get to that point fifty years from now for the world that we'd like to have.
1: Mm-hmm. Michael, I'd love for you to just hear your reflections because you know when I've talked to or have been at events that have kind of senior military people, they often want us or they often are thinking about and, and want to think in much longer-term strategic ways, and yet they're often. Kind of uh, imprisoned in a way with pol- political short-term thinking and priorities, and there's a, some, a lot of distortions that, that come in because it's like people want to get this new weapon system for their district so that they can get reelected elected and, and then there's a, they have to spend in this direction. So there's a way in which the priorities can get jumbled. And just uh, uh, curious, like how how, do, how would you see addressing that if you could again wave a magic wand and uh, allow the, the military to focus more on the what really really serves, and smart spending long-term versus the political cycles.
2: Well, I, I think it's going kind of a couple of different things. One is the change of consciousness among the American public in terms of how they think about these things. You mentioned kind of the short-term thinking, which drops a lot of this, the, you know, the military spending as an example. But the short-term thinking drives so much of our lives. You know, unfortunately, we're kind of immediate gratification. That's, you know, that's, Our technology leads us to immediate gratification. Our culture leads us to immediate gratification. Our financial system is immediate gratification. And until we can kind of break that spell and start thinking um, more longer term than the next quarter or the next quarter or even tomorrow, um, once we start doing that, I think that would be very helpful, not only in terms of pending on spending, but the totality Mm. of the issues we face as a country. You know, I, I talk a good bit about the politically conditioned mind you know, we all are politically conditioned, whether wherever we come from. You know, we have a certain perspective that we hold. Um, and one thing that I think would be helpful as a tool, and this is just one tool among many, is meditation. As an example, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen the the, the some reports, but meditation is prominent in the military these days. They do it at the Department of Defense. It's being taught to the various branches of the military. It's being in. That's great. I and mean, wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's uh, you know. It's, um, uh, in the financial sector, it's being done. In tech, it's being done. You know, It's a growing phenomenon, which is great. As someone who's been a meditator for 40 some, how old am I? Mm-hmm. 30 some plus years, it's no longer woo woo. It's, it's, it's a growing part of the culture. And there are a wide variety of practices like that, which allow one to kind of take a deep breath, <laughs> relax, uh, start seeing their immediate like, defensive responses to things. We all have them especially when we're fear. Steven, you mentioned the fear. It you know, kind of triggers that part of the brain. And meditation as a tool can kind of undo some mm-hmm. of that so you can be more thoughtful as opposed to reactive. And I think if individuals start doing that and communities start doing that and various people within institutions start doing that, better decisions can be taken long-term around health and wellness and spending priorities, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a more sustainable approach to how we want to live our lives as human beings. So hmm. just one suggestion. That's-
3: yeah, I well, I think a- anything, I just was going to say, I think anything that allows us, you know, the practices that allow us to be fully present, um, are are super important. And mm-hmm. I think that being fully present means that we want to be fully alive. And when we're fully alive, then we're thinking not only of what's happening in the here and now with our with I mean, which is being present, but we also create an awareness for how we fit within. Both um, our own communities, but even the broader world. And mm. when our when our minds open up a little bit like that, then we perhaps can begin to appreciate this notion of, you know, shared security or how we relate to people around the globe. And I think that's part of what you know. You know, we're all going to have a slightly different take on this from our political perspective, but I think we can agree that there are ways that we can look at our federal spending, and specifically the Pentagon spending, and think about security in new ways, and I would concur that it does start with the individual person.
1: This has been really rich. We just, we just have a couple minutes left, maybe just a minute from each of you on what you really see as the most promising next steps moving forward, let's say for the next year. So we've got you know, if we end up doing this as an annual event, uh, what would be the things that you would most like to see traction on in the next year in this arena? And maybe start with Michael.
2: Great. So a couple things, uh, Diane. You mentioned audit of the Pentagon. So since the '90s, it's been required by law for the Pentagon to be audited, and they fail failed to do so every year. It's the only agency that has not been audited. Um, Is including the GOP platform. One, probably one of the few things that's, from my perspective, good in the GOP platform. Um, so I'm hopeful that maybe we can not only pass a, you know, a law that reminds them that it's already a law to, to, to do an audit, but maybe put some teeth into it so you know, people are held accountable for actually for not complying with an audit. Because you know, you, you know, if you're a defense hawk and you want to spend more money, how can you make the argument, oh, we need to spend more money if you have no idea where the money is being spent? So I think Mm -hmm. that's a good short-term possibility um, that I'm hopeful for.
3: Great. I like um, that. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I would say that um, clearly, with the changing administration that's going to um, occur uh, after the election, there's always a new opportunity. Um, whether it is Trump or Clinton, we're going to have a different way of looking at the Pentagon and a lot of the priorities. Um, so I think those are always. There's always a new opening there. I concur that an audit of the Pentagon would be great. Um, we've also, in coalition with the Pentagon budget uh, campaign, looked at trying to prevent any kind of further increases in Pentagon spending through a kind of slush fund called the Overseas Contingency Operation. So we want to prevent that from happening. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would just say to continue to build this architecture for peace building that, that we referred to. That, that's really a, a high priority mm-hmm. for us. Great. And I, would, and I would reiterate something you mentioned earlier, Diane, is just to take
1: the time to to do some citizen lobbying, to make connections, yes. phone calls, letters, uh, get connected. It really does make a difference to have visited and had a personal connection with people in your, in your uh, representative's office or senator's office because then and, – And can I it, just say, can say we would
3: welcome people sure. be involved with Friends Committee on National Legislation. So if you come to fcnl.org, there's ways to sign up, and we would love to have people engaged. We can, we can totally
1: support and back that since we've done that ourselves, and it's great. Well, great. You two are super thoughtful. I want to put you in charge of our national evolution of our (laughs) (laughs) security. It's really great to talk to both of you, and I appreciate your deep thinking and uh, and really the integration of you know head, heart, and soul in in how you're thinking about these questions.
3: Thanks, Stephen. It's been great to be part of it. It's fun to talk with you, Michael.
2: Yeah, Diane. Same here. All right. Thanks, all.
0: Thank you for joining us for the American Citizen Summit, brought to you by The Shift Network. To add this powerful collection of teachings to your personal library, visit AmericanCitizenSummit.com slash upgrade. To learn more about our global community of people evolving their consciousness and our culture, visit ShiftNetwork.com. Thank you again for joining us and for sharing this empowering wisdom with your friends and family.